Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for uh, the events that have led us to this point. I thank you for returning faces that we haven't seen in a while, and I thank you for new faces here this morning. I thank you that you are always at work in hearts. I thank you that we are all on a level playing field before you, that we are all in need of your grace and your mercy and your compassion, and we're so grateful that you give it to us. We thank you for providing a way for us to be restored to you through your Son, that if we accept that gift of salvation that your Son paid for on the cross, that we can have new life and we can have an eternity with you. I thank you for your word that reveals these deep truths and secrets to us, that we may know better who you are and what your plan for us and the world is. And so, Lord, I pray that even though today is a tough day to do that, that you would give us clarity of mind, that we may soak in your word, understand it truly, and that it wouldn't just stay as information in our heads, but that it would work its way into our hearts and make a change in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The last episode of the CBS reality television show, Undercover Boss, uh, aired about a year ago on May 19, 2017. It premiered after Super Bowl 44 on February 7, 2010, and ran for eight seasons. The premise of the show focused on a high-level executive from a certain large-scale company entering a branch location of that business as an entry-level employee and see how he or she would be treated in that company as an entry-level employee. Production crews caught all the drama between employees and managers and newbie treatment of the, the disguised boss, and it aired for all the nation to see. The show covers a week in each episode focused on the one boss and his or her company. The boss tries a new job each day at the company, often at different locations of the business. At the end of the week, the boss reveals who he or she really is, and the employees who treated him or her well are rewarded with promotions whereas those who didn't do their job well or treated the boss poorly are given more training or fired on the spot. In the Bible, we have three different positions throughout human history that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, takes on. The first one is what is known in theology as the pre-incarnate Christ. When theologians presume that figures in the Old Testament, such as one of the angels who visited Abraham, and told him he would destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. The angel who wrestled with Jacob and gave him the name Israel. The angel who led the nation of Israel into the promised land. And even the one termed the destroyer who killed the firstborn of the Egyptian sons as the tenth plague. The second position that Jesus takes on is the beginning, in the beginning of the New Testament known as the first coming of Christ. When Jesus was born as a human, and therefore born both fully God and fully man, he taught about the kingdom of God and finding salvation from sins, and was subsequently executed on a Roman cross. Three days later, however, Jesus rose physically from the grave. Forty, Forty days after that, Jesus, in his human form, ascended back to heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father. 
in both of these first two positions of the Son of God, but especially at his first coming, it could be said that Jesus was the undercover boss of the universe at that point. The prophet Isaiah would prophesy about Jesus in his first coming. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He didn't look like the Messiah. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. In fact, what did we do? We weren't attracted to him. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. The book of Philippians tells us that Jesus, even being, even being for, uh, in the form of God, emptied himself of his divine attributes to humble himself as a man. Even beyond that, he went so far as to willingly die a torturous and humiliating death at the hands of other humans. If you think about it, Jesus was the ultimate undercover boss. No one except a select few knew who he really was and no one except three people saw his real glory at any point. Instead, the people who were created by Jesus misunderstood him, tried to take advantage of him, tried to discredit him, and ultimately killed him. But that was the point of the first coming, to identify with the weaknesses needs and suffering of us as average human beings and to pay the sacrificial payment on humanity's behalf to satisfy the righteous justice of God. But the way that Jesus presented himself to humanity at his first coming was not Jesus' full identity as the second person of the Trinity. When Jesus returns at his second coming, however, Who he is in all his glory will be revealed to all the inhabitants of the earth as well as those who had put their trust in him. That full reveal of who Jesus' true identity and glory really is is what we'll be talking about this morning with our passage from 2 Thessalonians. So the first point we're going to be talking about as we work through these few verses is the program, the timing of all of this. When you get a program at a concert, it tells you which song the performer is going to do next. And so we have a program, we have a timing of what's going to happen here. In the second letter that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in chapter 1, if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to 2 Thessalonians. It's in the New Testament. There's no shame if you have to look it up in the table of contents. I want us all to see this together. For, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 6 through 7. I'm just going to back up a little bit here from what we read. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. We talked about the first part of that last week. We're, touching, we're, we're talking about the second part of verse 7 and, and following this week. We talked last week about how Paul gives the Thessalonians battered by and defenseless from continued persecution some encouraging words that Jesus, the big sibling, would return to deal out retribution for the persecution they had been experiencing. We talked last week how this week 
we would delve more into the specifics and timing of that coming retribution from the hands of Jesus himself. The Bible is very clear about the timing of the first coming of Christ. It was prophesied down to the very year of Jesus' birth. It was confirmed even as early as the first letter of Paul to the churches in Galatia, which we've already covered back around the year 48 AD. And we read in that letter, but when the fullness of the time came, when it was the perfect time in history, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. That was the whole point of the first coming, right? That's the first coming summed up in two verses there. And and this letter was written in the year 48 AD. The theological truth of Jesus' return is likewise undeniable. Jesus himself spoke of it as recorded for us in Luke chapter 21. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. It's the timing of the program, though, that has caused confusion in regards to the connection between the rapture which Paul had previously written to the Thessalonians about in the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, and what is known as the second coming of Christ. What we first have to see is that Paul's description of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4 and this description of the second coming in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 are not the same event. They're not the same event. In order to have a comprehensive understanding of why this is, we need to take a look at the Bible as a whole. Certain prophecies about the last days of this earth were revealed to different prophets in different time periods. Not everything was revealed at once, and not everything was revealed to one person. Rather, end times prophecies were revealed little by little throughout human history until the culmination of those prophecies in the book of Revelation in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, descriptions of of a certain end times world event are given. The descriptions of this are such that it has not happened yet in world history, and you'll see this. The prophet Zechariah prophesies about a time when Jerusalem will be a cause of reeling for all the nations of the earth, and thus all the nations of the earth will gather together to attack the city of Jerusalem. Zechariah says, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. That fact about this event has not happened yet. Certain nations, certain nations, have come against Jerusalem to attack it. While Zechariah was prophesying, Babylon had already attacked and destroyed Jerusalem. In fact, according to the book of Nehemiah, Zechariah was born in Babylonian captivity. Babylon had already attacked Jerusalem and destroyed it at the point of this prophecy. 
So the only other possible historical attribution could be when Rome attacked and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. However, Rome is only one nation and not all the nations of the earth. And there are other aspects of the descriptions of this attack that don't line up with the historical Roman one. So therefore, it must not have happened yet. So all the nations of the earth will gather together to attack Jerusalem. They will be mostly successful. For Zechariah says, For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured. The houses plundered, the women ravished, and the half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. That's a very de- graphic description, isn't it? And this is putting it nicely in, in the NASB. That's a very graphic description of what's going to happen to Jerusalem at the end of this battle. When this battle is over, Zechariah says, Watch, for the day of the Lord is coming when your possessions will be plundered right in front of you at the end of this battle. All the nations who attack Jerusalem will be, as one biblical scholar put it, and I quote, leisurely dividing the spoil from Jerusalem in its streets in front of the defeated people, thinking they have defeated the Jews, thinking they've won. And then out of nowhere, something will happen. Zechariah then reveals what happens next. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. One biblical scholar said the reason for this is for the remaining people living in Jerusalem will have a valley to escape out of the city from. Just when the inhabitants of Jerusalem thought all hope is lost, God himself will show up to destroy those nations who attacked and were looting his holy city. Notice what very specific detail is given here in this prophecy. Where would God stand? On the Mount of Olives. Now this is huge to our discussion here. When Jesus ascended back to heaven, think back with me about this. When Jesus ascended back to heaven, 40 days after his death and resurrection, where did Jesus specifically ascend from? Luke 24 tells us, and he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them, and while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. If you look at the geography of the area, you will discover that Bethany is just one village located on none other than the Mount of Olives. That fact is confirmed by the book of Acts, noting that after Jesus ascended to heaven, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from where? From the Mount of Olives, a distance of half a mile. You might say, who cares? That's where Jesus ascended from. That doesn't tell us anything. When Jesus ascends to heaven, however, a couple of angels appear and say to the disciples, Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? 
Jesus has been taken from you into heaven. Remember where he left from. But someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. So where Jesus ascended from is very important to that verse there. Because the angels say he will return from heaven in the same exact way you saw him go. And how would the exact same way be? From standing on the Mount of Olives to rising to heaven. Reverse that and you descend out of heaven. And this is very important. Stand once again on the Mount of Olives. That's huge. Not only because it clearly connects as the fulfillment of Zechariah 14, but it also connects to another verse and God's imagery of this event in Zechariah. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah. What was the tribe that Jesus came from? Judah. Like a flame that sets a wood pile ablaze, or like a burning torch among sheaves of grain, they will burn up all the neighboring nations right and left, while the people living in Jerusalem remain secure. The descriptive words of these verses, do they not match right up with the description of Jesus' second coming in our passage from 2 Thessalonians 1, second part of verse 7 and into 8? Let's read that together. What kind of images is being described here in Zechariah 12? Fire burning up, flames, right? Verse 7. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in what? Flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Because of this comprehensive connection of Jesus returning in blazing fire and fury to deal out retribution to God's enemies and again standing on the Mount of Olives, we can confidently differentiate this event of Jesus' second coming from what Paul has already described in 1 Thessalonians as the rapture. In his previous letter, Paul was very clear that dead and still alive believers in Jesus would ascend to meet the Lord where? In the air. The purposes of these two events are drastically different. In 1 Thessalonians 4, along with its parallel passage in 1 Corinthians 15, the purpose of the rapture is to rescue the believers in Jesus from the coming great tribulation and to reward them with completely exchanged bodies to inherit eternal life and be with Jesus forever. In 2 Thessalonians 1, the purpose of this event is for Jesus to return to earth in retribution and judgment. Do you see the drastically different purposes in the two events here? In Revelation, <clears throat> the battle that both Zechariah and Ezekiel prophesy about, and when Jesus returns to ultimately pay back retribution towards all the wickedness on the earth, is fulfilled in Revelation 19's description. And I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. There is that imagery again. And on his head are many diadems. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. 
From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Again, that's a very different description of Jesus than we're used to in Sunday school, isn't it? But this is the full reveal of who Jesus is in all of his glory. This great battle that is described in Revelation 19 is known as the Battle of Armageddon. As you compare Revelation to the rest of Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, a picture begins to form of the timing of this end times program. We see that the rapture is the first thing to happen. When Jesus only returns partially, not all the way down to earth, to call up those who put their faith in him. Nothing else prophecy-wise has to happen before the rapture takes place. It could happen at any time. The next major event to happen is that great and terrible day of the Lord that's prophesied about in the Old Testament and confirmed in the New Testament known as the Great Tribulation when God will pour out His wrath on all the evil in this world. In spite of all the judgments against evil as recorded for us in Revelation, evil will continue to grow during that time period until it once again sets its sight on God's chosen people in Israel. They will attack Jerusalem, like we just talked about in Zechariah. But when they think they have ultimately won, Jesus himself will return fully at his second coming, destroying all the nations of the world who attack Jerusalem and stand on the Mount of Olives. We haven't talked much about what will happen after that. But once Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah again prophesies, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day there will be one Lord. His name alone will be worshipped. The book of Revelation describes the fulfillment of that prophecy as when Jesus fits, sets up a physical kingdom here on earth for a thousand years and Satan is imprisoned for that time. It will be a time of peace and prosperity for the entire world centered on Israel with Jesus ruling as king from Jerusalem. We again see the purpose of Jesus' second coming, ultimate retribution and judgment against the evil of this world. And we, we see that purpose clearly in Paul's description of this same event in 2 Thessalonians 1. So we talked about the program. Secondly, we're talking about the purpose of this event. There is a two-pronged approach for this purpose of the second coming. We read in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10, that this two-pronged purpose is ultimate freedom from and domination of the evil in this world for believers in Jesus, and ultimate retribution and judgment towards those taking part in the evil. Let's focus on the second prong of this purpose first. Paul writes that Jesus will deal out affliction for those doing evil the source of the persecution they're dealing with now. 
Paul also says in verse 9 that this affliction will take the form of judgment, the penalty of eternal destruction. That is, eternal banishment from God's presence. Let's read that, verse 9. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Those who reject God's message of love and live for themselves and are content to live lives unpleasing to God, and especially those who actively persecute God's people, their justice has already been sealed. Jesus said exactly this to the Pharisee Nicodemus when he said, There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, in Jesus. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. Notice where that verse is. We know the more famous verse, that's two verses before that, John 3.16. But we often forget about this verse. When Jesus returns at his second coming, he will purge the world of those who practice evil, and especially those who attacked and looted Jerusalem just before Armageddon. Not everyone who didn't have faith in Jesus will be destroyed, though. For Zechariah says during Jesus' millennial kingdom, then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up to Jerusalem from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Those of you who have been attending our Sunday evening service know what the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles is, and the symbolism of it. And I'm not going to put you in the position to ask you what that is, because I know we talked about it a while ago, but the whole symbolism of the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles in the Old Testament is the end days and Jesus' kingdom. So because of that, those who are left on earth after the battle of Armageddon will continue to go up year after year to the city of Jerusalem to, to present their worship before the king. These will be the ones, these people that will have to do this year after year will be the ones ruled over Jesus and his servants. Even though it will be a time of suppressed and limited sin and evil, since Jesus and his perfected servants will be ruling with an iron rod of justice, which we read about in Revelation 19, it will not be completely eradicated, sin and evil, from the earth. Therefore, when Revelation prophesies that Satan will be released from his supernatural prison after those thousand years are up, he will once again deceive the earthly, unredeemed inhabitants of Jesus' millennial kingdom into surrounding and attacking Jerusalem once again. Just doesn't give up. At that point, we read in Revelation, fire from heaven will come down and consume all those who wanted to persecute and inflict harm and evil against God's people. At both of these instances, God will put to death those who in their evil seek to destroy God's people. Therefore, their fates will be sealed. Their right and fitting punishment that will begin to be widely enacted with force at Jesus' second coming will be, as Second Thessalonians says, eternal destruction and banishment from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. That's the ultimate judgment. 
When people say, I, uh, it doesn't matter where I go when I die, I'm, I'll go to hell, I'm just going to party with my friends. That is a completely inaccurate description of what hell really is. A completely accurate description of what hell really is is exactly what verse 9 says. Pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Imagine a world where God not is. It is not. A world where there is no goodness. A world where there is no love. A world where there is no light. That is what those who do not recognize Jesus as Savior and King now have to look forward to. I'm not a fire and brimstone preacher. You guys know that. But I also have to describe what Scripture clearly points out to us. This judgment befalls anyone who dies without recognizing their own sinfulness and who rejects the salvation of God through Jesus. It will ultimately be realized for everyone who has ever lived and rejected God's plan of salvation when they finally stand before Almighty God. Their name is not found in God's book of those who did not put their faith and trust in Jesus, and they will receive that eternal destruction and banishment. That is what the second coming of Jesus represents to those who reject God's plan of salvation. What does it represent for those who accept it? A much different story. Exactly what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians verse 10. Chapter 1 verse 10. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. Those who were raptured prior to Jesus' second coming are caught up to meet him in the air and will thus be with Jesus forever. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4 promises us. And thus we will always be with the Lord forever. Amen? Amen. While Jesus is still in heaven during the time of the great tribulation, where are we going to be? With him. Likewise, as the period of the great tribulation comes to a close and the armies of all the earth attack Jerusalem, loot it, and think they've won against God's chosen people, when Jesus returns to earth at his second coming, where are we going to be? With him. We will also be with him. At that point, all the inhabitants of the earth witness the glory of Jesus being reflected in those he saved from that destruction that will befall them, as verse 10 says. In describing the battle of Armageddon, when Jesus returns at his second coming to destroy those who attack Jerusalem, lands on the Mount of Olives, and establishes his earthly millennial kingdom, Revelation says, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Something very curious about that description. Do you see it? The inclusion of that detail, white and clean linen, is used over and over and over again throughout the New Testament to describe who? To describe those redeemed by Jesus and washed clean from their sins. So as such, we as believers promised by God's word to always be with Jesus in 1 Thessalonians 4 must therefore be part of his earthly millennial kingdom. We read in Revelation chapter 5, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. It's talking about Jesus here. For you were slain. 
and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's the beauty of the church right there. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and what? They will reign upon the earth. I added that emphasis there. Zechariah 14, describing the second coming, also backs that up. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. One biblical scholar notes that all the holy ones probably means angels as well as the souls of the redeemed. The second coming of Jesus to destroy most of the evil and especially the persecutors and attackers of his people will be a source of marveling for us as believers who have previously been raptured and are returning to earth with Jesus. Why? And I know this has been a long message and a very involved one and we're coming to the close. So I want you to push forward with any remaining attention span you have left. We, along with the believers in Thessalonica, who will be raptured with us, will finally witness the beginning of retribution towards this evil world and full freedom from that evil in every way. The power of Jesus' salvation will be radiating from us as we marvel at God's grace towards us. Because he didn't have to do any of this for us. We could have just simply suffered the same fate as everyone else. We'll marvel at God's grace towards us. We'll marvel at his promises for us. And we'll marvel at his eternal presence with us. This is what I want us to focus on this morning. The second coming of Jesus, a real event that will happen as prophesied in Scripture, is also represented to a much lesser extent in each one of our lives in the here and now. If we never embrace the salvation that God offers to us because of the payment that Jesus paid for our sin, we will suffer the same eternal fate as those who were actively persecuting the Thessalonian church and will be attacking the city of Jerusalem in the end days. We will suffer the same eternal destruction and same eternal banishment from the presence of God and all that that entails, like we were talking about. On the other hand, we who have put our faith and trust in Jesus' death as payment for our sin, His resurrection and giving us new life, and His indwelling Holy Spirit, and Jesus' kingship over our lives in the here and now. See, there will be a day when every knee will bow before Him. But if we recognize Jesus' kingship in the here and now over our lives, we have nothing but hope and excitement to look forward to. Our salvation grants, again, not based on anything we can do or who we are, only based on who Jesus is and what he's done. Our salvation grants us access to God's presence both now and fully for eternity. Think of it this way. Not just looking forward to eternity, but thinking, God has given me freedom and new life and hope and peace in this life. No matter what is going on in me or around me, and, as a bonus, I get eternal life with him. As Paul says, we will marvel at the power of Jesus' glory at his second coming, and we will enjoy it for all of eternity. So let's start now. Amen?
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture, even though it was difficult to work through, wrap our heads around it. We thank you that you don't leave us in the dark. We thank you that you are a good God who has already given us the only requirement for salvation from your judgment and your justice, and that is the blood of Jesus that was sacrificed on our behalf, and that is the new life of his resurrection. We thank you that we have that, that you had us be born in this time period, that we can look back on that and cling to that with all of our lives, knowing that it's only all that we have, but it's all that we need. And because of that, we can look forward to the future with excitement and hope. We thank you for the power of that promise and that peace. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me as we close out.